Let's open up our Bibles to 1 Peter. This is the final, you're here for something special, the last message in our 1 Peter series. So there you go. You can say you were here for that day when we finished it. We're going to read in a moment from 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, uh, verses 8 to 14, right through to the end. But let me begin with a little bit of history. Um, it is tradition to believe that the Apostle Peter, who wrote this letter, um, was martyred by being crucified upside down. Okay, So this tradition arose from uh, extra-biblical writings, so writings that were uh, written, books and letters that were written at the same time that the Bible was written, but not included in the Bible because... They weren't always accurate and true and a good reflection of what happened and also not inspired by the Holy Spirit, more importantly. Uh, but these extra-biblical writings, um, people wrote about what had happened. There's one called The Acts of Peter. And in this letter or this book about the Acts of the Apostle Peter, it tells us that he was crucified upside down, head down to the earth. And that letter and that idea is supported by some of the early church fathers uh, so his his names you might not be familiar with but Tertullian and Oregon and uh, Jerome these were early church fathers in the first and second centuries they believed and held that Peter was crucified upside down and this idea is then captured in a painting which is in the Vatican which was done by Michelangelo which shows Peter being crucified head down to the earth and this image of him being crucified um, upside down captures something about what he's been trying to get at throughout this book and it in fact captures something that the entire scriptures are about aren't they because the kingdom of God and the Christian life that we live is a reverse upside down kingdom it's a kingdom where the way up towards heaven is the way down that uh, <clears throat> our future inheritance and exaltation and our share in the glory of Jesus Christ and all that he's done for us only comes to us after a season of suffering. And that's what Peter's been trying to get at through his letter, that suffering and persecution for the Christian precedes glory. It was for Jesus himself and so it will be for all who follow Jesus. Now, if you recall from uh, our study at First Peter over the last few months, he's been bringing together these two ideas. He's been making clear that we have a status with Jesus that is firm and secure and glorious. We're in him. We've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But also, as Christians, we will suffer and be persecuted while on earth. It's been repeated all the way through the book. So right from the chapter 1, verse 1, he calls them elect exiles. Do you remember that? They're chosen, but they're exiled from their home at the moment. Then in chapter 1, verses 3 to 6, he talked about how our inheritance that's imperishable and unfading and undefiled, that's kept in heaven for us, is linked to the various trials that we experience that God is using to purify us and refine us. And he talked about in chapter 2 that we are God's chosen and precious people and yet we still sojourn, we, we journey, we wander through this world to our final destination. And that's a hard journey. And then he took us almost to the ultimate, to the pinnacle in chapter 3, where he talks about the suffering of Jesus 
and how the suffering of Jesus and his crucifixion, which is really the lowest point, actually brings about vindication and victory for Jesus and all who are joined to him. So these two truths have been interwoven right throughout this letter, and they're interwoven all the way through the New Testament. So it's no surprise that when we get to the final passage in our, in our study today, from verses 8 to verse 14, that again he's referring to these two truths. And if you look in verse 12, which we'll read in a second, but in verse 12, he says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this, that all that I've said about the upside down kingdom and about Christians experiencing suffering before glory, all that I have said to you, I've written this to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. That this is, the, this is the true grace of God, that exaltation follows humiliation, that eternal glory only comes after earthly suffering, that in God's economy and in God's kingdom and in the life of all of God's followers, the way up is the way down. So we're going to read from verse 8 all the way to the end, and then I've got just two things to draw our attention to. So, if you need a Bible, they're down the center aisles. Uh, it's page 500 and something, I think. Uh, but here we go. We're going to read from verse 8. This is what God's Word says. Be sober-minded and be watchful. For your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you to him. Be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, that just means the church in Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let me pray and then we'll jump in. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for our study of 1 Peter. And we thank you for the way that it's helped us uh, prepare for life in this world. Following you in a world that is hostile to you. And we pray that as we conclude our study, that you would speak again, encourage our hearts and strengthen our faith for the remaining journey we have as elect exiles in this world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, as I said, the, these verses really sum up what Peter has been trying to say all the way through. And before he gets to the final greetings about how he sent this letter with Silvanus and how he sends his greetings from the church in Rome and from Mark and how he tells us all to greet one another with kissing, <laughs> so uh, and, and as he bestows peace on all of us, he... He sums up his, his letter with two final thoughts. One is a command and one is an encouragement. 
And these, this command and this encouragement, I think they can be summed up in two words. The command can be summed up in this word, resistance. And the encouragement can be summed up in this word, assurance. So there's, there's our two things that we're going to get from this text this morning. Resistance and assurance. A final command and a final encouragement. So let's begin with the final command, resistance. Now, one of my favorite bands growing up, DC Talk, they sang a song about uh, some people got to learn the hard way. Uh, and then I guess if Peter was singing it, he would identify. And the next line is, I guess I'm the kind of guy who likes to find out for myself. Some people got to learn the hard way. And, and that's what Peter is going to encourage us this morning. Not to learn the hard way, but to learn from his mistakes. That he went through some things that he now says, don't do what I did. And what he's going to say to us in this final command springs from his own rich, personal uh, and painful history and experience. If you, uh, you don't have to turn there because it's going to come up on the screen. But in Luke 22, uh, we, we find an encounter with Jesus. Uh, the, the disciples have, have met together. They're in the upper room. It's, it's Thursday evening. Jesus has just washed their feet. He's shared with them the Passover meal that he's transformed into the Lord's Supper. Uh, and then Jesus begins to speak to Peter in verse 31. And he says this. He says, Simon, which is Peter's other name. Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you. That he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So Peter speaks to Jesus and rebuffs his, uh, his foretelling of what's going to happen. Nah, in his, all of his arrogance and his normal way of, th of behaving, he says, nah, Jesus, I'm going to die with you. But then uh, as they head out into the Garden of Gethsemane, we read these words in verse 39. And when Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him, and he came to the place and he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then he withdrew with, from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he arose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then in verses 54 to 62, we read this account as Jesus is arrested and taken to the, uh, the trial that he faced in the high priest's house. And we find Peter sitting around a fire in the courtyard and they uh, as they seized Jesus and led him away, verse 54, bringing him into the high priest's house, Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light, looked at him closely and said, this man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else said, saw him and said, you are one of them. Peter said, man, I am not. 
and after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. You see, Peter, the apostle Peter who wrote our letter, knew firsthand the experience of failure and sin. He knew the dangers of the devil and the schemes of the evil one, the crafty schemes. And he fell asleep at the hour of need. He knew that he had not been, as he exhorts us, sober-minded and watchful. Jesus comes and he says, could you not watch and pray so that you wouldn't enter into temptation? Could you not resist? But Peter, hadn't he, gloriously, had also come to know the grace of God and the forgiveness. As recorded in John 21, he is sat around another fire on the beach after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes three times and restores him and uh, recommissions him. And he turned. And this letter that we hold in our hands of First Peter is the turning point it comes after the turning point and it comes to fulfill the words of Jesus in Luke 22 after you have turned go again and strengthen your brothers that's what he's doing here he's strengthening us repeating really the words of Jesus watch and pray so that you might resist don't do what I did don't fail in the same ways that I failed. So he says to us in verse 8, be sober-minded, have clear thinking, be watchful, be alert, and resist. Do not enter into temptation. Peter here, he wants us to be on high alert. He wants us to have our wits about us because... He tells us we have an adversary, we have an enemy who is prowling around like a lion intent on hunting us down and picking us off and devouring us and our faith in Jesus Christ. And that adversary is the devil. Now, we don't want to get too uh, bogged down. This, there's normally like two ways in which people, Christians like you and me, we think about the devil these are two common ways. One is to be unwisely preoccupied and sort of obsessed with the devil and his antics. And so we see him everywhere uh, and we become fearful of him because we think he's dangerous, which he is, and he's out to get us, which he is. And so we cower in fear and we flee him and we're worried about him. And so that's often one ha on one hand some of the ways that Christians... Uh, deal with the devil on the other hand probably the more common way is that we completely ignore him and we pretend he doesn't exist and we ignore his antics and we're dismissive of his existence and we forget that actually we have an enemy we're so familiar with the, the enemy of our soul uh, 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 you know the internal indwelling sin as an enemy and we're aware of the world as an enemy but we can forget that we have an enemy that stands behind the world and its persecution of Christians 
which is the devil. And Peter says, no, listen, you've got to be on red alert, Christians, because the, the threat alert is high. We have an enemy who is real and dangerous. Don't ignore him. Don't dismiss him. Don't become obsessed with him either. But be aware that he's like a lion prowling around looking for easy targets ready to pick off. And he's looking for targets where he can devour their faith. And he can make them deny Jesus and, and uh, recant their professions of faith. And Peter says, if we are not sober-minded and watchful and resistant, he will pick you off. And he can pick me off as well. Philip Reichen, who's a pastor in America, says one of the most dangerous things in the world would be to think that we're not in any danger, which is the mistake Peter made. One of the greatest mistakes, the danger, most dangerous things in the world is to think we're not in any danger. And that is the mistake Peter made. And so he pleads with us with strong language. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Resist. Don't learn the hard way. I'm the guy who, made, who had to find out for myself. Don't do it. We have an enemy. We've got to be aware of that. And this enemy is seeking to discredit God's word and to discredit God's works. And so he refers to him as an adversary, which actually the word is accuser. In Revelation 12, the devil is called the accuser of the brethren. He comes and he accuses and he slanders and he lies to us. Now, what does he lie to us and slander? Well, he slanders God to our ears, doesn't he? If you think about the, some of the things that you might have experienced, that you might not have even realized, might have come from the devil's cunning schemes. Because the devil likes to slander God to Christians. He likes to come and he likes to whisper in our ears lies that sow seeds of doubt and unbelief about the character and the nature and the goodness and the love of God. And he does that especially in times of persecution and suffering. His voice seems to be even louder during those times. So maybe you've had thoughts. I know I have thoughts and, and, and ideas that come into your mind at different times that might sound similar to these kind of things. Where's God in the midst of this suffering? If God is truly powerful and he's truly good and he truly loves me, why is he doing this to me? Why is this happening? I thought as a Christian I would escape this. Doesn't God care? God has abandoned me. Those are the kind of lies that come down from the accuser, from Satan. And there are they're lies that, are, that attack us, that are attempting to devour our faith. To make us say, yeah, where is God? Oh, he doesn't love me. And we turn our backs and walk away. Sinclair Ferguson, in, in uh, one of his books, says this, which I found just very helpful. He says, Satan cannot ultimately destroy a Christian believer, so he has no power to kill us or end our lives. It's in God's hands. But, he says, but he is well able to destroy our assurance and our joy and our pleasure in the gospel. So we need to find in the grace of God a defense against those fiery darts of the evil one. The most sinister thoughts that Satan insinuates into our minds are not enticements to sin. 
but suspicions about God himself. He seeks to distort our view of God. He seeks to uh, and, and distort our understanding of his gracious character. Satan's plan is to blind us to God's grace and to diminish our trust in him, crushing our love for God and destroying all the pleasures of grace. That's what he's out to do, to destroy our confidence in God and his gospel, to diminish our trust in him, to make us turn our backs on him, and he will slander the character and nature of God so that it might have that effect. So Peter says, be watchful and resist. We must be on our guard, especially during times of persecution and suffering. Now, there's a second way that Satan attacks us, and that is to slander us to ourselves, if you like. So he comes and he not only tells us lies about God, he tells us lies about ourselves. He comes to us and and he says, you can't be a Christian because you just did that. You looked at that. You said that. I can't believe you would do that. You call yourself a Christian and you do that. You failed. You let God down. He died for you and you can't even live for him. You're rubbish. You don't deserve this. You're not a true son. You're not a true daughter. You, no, you don't. That's nonsense. And he comes and he tells us and in all of his cunning and his evil and his slander and his accusations, he seeks to destroy our faith. He wants us to throw in the towel. He wants us to, to deny Jesus and to walk away and to say, yeah. And that's what he's doing in the world today. And Peter says, we've got to be watchful. We've got to be alert. We've got to be, don't be blindsided. Don't be distracted. Don't be unaware of his schemes. Wise up. And be ready for war. So he says, be sober-minded, be watchful and resist. So this this idea of alertness and sobriety, of clear thinking and being watchful, it is supposed to provoke active response in the heart of Christians, that we're supposed to resist. There could be the temptation to think, we've got to flee the devil. No, actually, the New Testament never calls us to flee the devil. It calls us to flee sin, but it calls us to stand firm and fight, to resist Not in our own strength, but in the strength that Christ provides. Because Christ has triumphed victoriously over our enemy. He's a defeated adversary. He's an enemy who's on the run trying to... He's lost the war, but he's trying to still win a few last skirmishes before his time is up. Peter tells us he's a lion prowling around, but he's a lion on a leash. In fact, if if you want a good image of 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 um, how this, how to think about this. Um, when we were on holiday, we were listening to the C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia, and we listened to The Last Battle. don't know if anybody's read The Last Battle, but there, it begins with this scene where there's a monkey and a donkey, and they, they discover a lion skin uh, on the ground somewhere. I don't know how, but, you know. And the monkey convinces the donkey to dress as a lion and pretend that he's Aslan. That's the kind of image here that Peter, I think, would say, that's what I meant when I said the devil is a lion. He's like a donkey dressed in a lion skin. He's got some illusion of a lion. And he's prowling around and he's dangerous, but he ain't the real thing. He doesn't have power like Jesus has power. 
who's the true lion of the tribe of Judah. He's a lion on a leash. He's a donkey in a lion's skin. So we stand firm and we fight. Now, how do we resist? Because that's obviously a question that's probably going through your minds right now. How do we resist the devil and his schemes? Well, Peter tells us in verse 9, resist him by being firm in your faith. So it requires faith. It requires faith in Jesus Christ. We're not to dig deep uh, and face him off uh, with our own resources. How can you and I, how in the world would you and I, simple human beings, be able to resist a supernatural evil being in our own strength? We just couldn't do it. But hide ourselves in God and we're going to win. And that's what he tells us to do. Be firm in our faith, firm in our trust, firm in our confidence of God and his word and his promises and his actions in his son. We're called to exercise an active faith that we believe that God is sovereign, that we believe that God is good, that we believe that God has all wisdom and power and that he, the things that the scriptures tell us about him are true. No more clearly displayed than in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So resistance, Peter doesn't give us quick formulas and just do this and just do that and recant this and say that and wear garlic round your neck and have a cross in your back pocket, you know, all the time. The kind of things that, you know, you scare vampires off with. No quick formulas. Hard work. Stand firm in your faith. We might say it like this, preach the gospel to yourselves again and again and again. Take in God's word, pray it out. What does Jesus say in Luke? uh, Well, in Luke 22, Jesus doesn't quite say it, but in the parallel passage in Mark 14, Jesus says, watch and pray that you might not be led into temptation. So we pray, we pray, and we pray. We take God's word in, we believe the gospel, we pray it back to him, and we find strength and growing faith in him that allows us to reject the lies of Satan. When a lie pops into our head, God doesn't love you, we say, oh yes, he does, because he's shown me his love in Jesus Christ. God has forsaken you. Oh no, he hasn't. He's given me his spirit that lives within God's not all good. Oh, yes, he is. His word tells me it is. And so we take his word and we exercise faith. So think about how First Peter functions in that way. Because he says, stand firm in your faith. So what has he written to encourage us to stand firm? Well, he's written right from the beginning, doesn't, didn't he? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And not only has he caused us to be born again, he's given us an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and kept in heaven for us. And God is keeping us too. And he's made us his people. We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people belonging to God that we might be his treasured possession. And he's building us into his house, his temple where he will dwell. And he's done it all through Jesus Christ. Who, as as Tom referenced this morning during our singing in verse 21 who committed no sin who though he was reviled did not revile in return but he suffered and endured entrusting himself to God who judges justly and he bore our sins in his body on the tree 
and he died so that we might live to righteousness by his wounds we have been healed we were like straying sheep who went who've gone astray but we now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls he's there's so much more one uh, commentator Juan Sanchez says this we stand firm knowing that while the world may take everything away from us it cannot take away our glorious identity or our imperishable future because we are elect exiles set apart by the Holy Spirit for the salvation accomplished by Christ and now are on our way home we stand firm knowing that even the world may even though the world may kill us We've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an imperishable inheritance. We stand firm knowing that God does not waste our suffering, but he intends for it to purify our faith in order that we may obtain our future salvation when Christ is revealed. We stand firm knowing that the Lord Jesus traveled the road marked with righteous suffering and blazed a path for us to follow. We stand firm knowing that if we suffer for doing good, we will be blessed. And we will be exalted to glory as Christ was. We stand firm knowing that as we share in Christ's sufferings, we are proven to be Christians. We stand firm by humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand, knowing that he will exalt us. And he says this, we, you and I, we can and we must stand firm in the true grace of God until we breathe no more. Or Christ is revealed. So we stand firm. We resist. We stand on the truth and the promises of God's word. And we pray. But more gloriously, someone is praying for us. Remember in Luke 22, Jesus says, The devil has asked that he might sift you like wheat. But Jesus says to Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And the same Jesus who prayed for Peter prays for us. Consider these glorious truths from Romans 8. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who it is that? The right hand of God who indeed is interceding, praying for us. He's praying for us. What is he praying? Well, I think he's praying that our faith may not fail. And then Paul goes on, doesn't he? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will our faith fail? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword separate us from the love of Christ and make our faith fail? No. As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things... In all these things, what things? In all of the tribulation and the distress and the persecution and the famine and nakedness and danger and sword. All these things. We're more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loved us. For I'm sure neither death nor life nor angels or rulers, no devils, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. When he prays for us, his prayers are effective. What about Hebrews 7? Again, Tom referenced it in the singing. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. He's better than the Old Testament. 
The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They died and they needed to be replaced. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he lives, he continues forever. Consequently, because he lives forever, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So we stand and we resist, but do you know what? Jesus stands behind us praying that our faith may not fail. A little bit like when you, you know, I don't know whether this ever happened to you, but when, when my little brother, who's now taller than I am, um, started secondary school, there was a kid in the school who was bullying him. And I remember these two kids in the playground, they, they were bullying. And so one day, me and my other brother just came up and we just stood behind him. And because at that point I was bigger than the little seven-year-olds, uh, sorry, year sevens, not seven-year-olds. Um, I am bigger than seven-year-olds for those who are listening to this recording. <laughs> the kid turned around and he legged it. Not because my little brother could beat him up, but because there was someone stood behind. And that's the image of, of us here. We're called to stand and resist, knowing that Jesus stands behind us, praying for us. And his prayers will ultimately be effective for all his people. So Peter says, resist. Be watchful and alert, active in our faith and trust in God and his gospel. Aware that we might suffer, but there will be salvation. The way up is the way down. Resistance. That's his final command. But then his final encouragement, captured in the word assurance. Assurance. So resistance doesn't grant us immunity from suffering. Unfortunately, we will still all suffer as Christians. That is the norm and the common experience endured by countless believers right around the world. Look at what Peter says in verse 9. He says, resist the devil, firm in your faith. But then he says, knowing that the same kinds of suffering, they're just being experienced by your brothers and sisters throughout the world. It's a common experience. Resistance is necessary because immunity from suffering isn't granted to Christians. That's our common, normal experience. But by the grace of God, every day, the suffering that we face will eventually lead to glory. Look with me at, at verse 10. Let feast our eyes on this. And after you have suffered for a little while, and let me just say this. That doesn't mean, well, you struck, you've had a tough week. A little while might be the whole 70 years that you're alive on this earth. Okay? That might be the little while. But in comparison to glory, it's like a teardrop in the ocean. Painful now. Don't misunderstand me. But glorious glory is to come so he says after you've suffered a little while it might seem long right now but the god of all 
grace who has called you to eternal glory will restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. What a word of assurance. What a word of encouragement. Though you suffer now, there is a day coming where it will all come to an end. Because the God of all grace, the all grace, you see that God of all grace, that means there's no other source of grace. That means there's no, no one else who possesses grace. That means he is the giver of all grace. He has an, a storehouse of grace to give. He is our God and he will, and he, and he says four words, restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. Now, we could spend ages passing them out. What do all of those mean? Peter's just piling them up to make one emphatic point. Jesus, grace personified, has got you. And he will save you to the utmost. This is Peter's way of saying what Paul said in Philippians 1. He who started his work in you will complete it. That's Peter's way of saying it. The God of all grace, though you suffer for a little while now, he will restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. He will finish what he's done, what he's begun. You could be absolutely sure. Yes, sufferings, intense. But God's grace is greater. It may, there may be a weight now. Your life might seem painful now. It might get worse. But the God of all grace will restore you. He will confirm you. He will strengthen you. He will establish you. He will finish what he started. No wonder then, verse 11, he breaks out in praise. Oh, brothers and sisters, he says, resist the devil. But let me bring assurance to you. God isn't going to fail you. He's got you. He holds you. He's the God of all grace, whose power and dominion is forever and ever. Power doesn't belong to Caesar. It doesn't belong to Satan. It belongs to God. Grace doesn't belong to anybody else apart from God. He alone is sovereign. He alone is all-powerful. He alone reigns. He alone wields a mighty hand on behalf of his precious people to save us, even in the midst of persecution, because he is a God of grace. The roar of the devil and the flames of persecution cannot and will not overthrow the certainty and the fullness of God's salvation. So he says, let's praise God together and then he says in his final words of verse 14 let this bring peace to God's people even as elect exiles let there be comfort and assurance and peace because God the God of all grace will restore confirm strengthen and establish you to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever and then all God's people said amen let's pray